I have nothing to say. <laughs> Except it'd probably be best for us just to go to prayer. I don't know what else to do. Let's just, let's just pray. Pray with me, please. Lord, you are kind to us. Uh, even when you are strong with us, even when you are harsh with us, and your words today are strong. So give us teachable, submissive hearts today that we might receive, Jesus, your good words for us all. By your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm sure most of you are familiar with a board game called Clue. It is a detective board game. You move your game piece from room to room, gathering clues in a desperate attempt to solve a mystery. And when all the clues line up, we proudly pronounce it was Mr. Green in the lounge with the candlestick, right? And the mystery is solved and you, you win the game. Now, in our passage today, it has that kind of feel to it at the beginning. Uh, we find a series of clues that are intended to help us solve a critical mystery. So, because leading up to Mark 11, Jesus has been veiling his identity. You remember back in chapter 8, he asked, Jesus said, uh, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged him to tell no one about him. Um, so many, it seems, at this juncture in Mark are left trying to solve the mystery, who is this Jesus? But in Mark 11, our passage for, for today, the curtain begins to lift and the identity of Jesus begins to be revealed. But to solve the mystery, you have to follow the clues. And we'll track a handful of them or so today. These are the ones we'll look at in our first section. Uh, a map, a donkey, cloaks, and shouts. Right? So let's, let's track through those and see if we can figure out who Jesus is based on these clues. First clue is a map that starts in the very first verse of chapter 11. It simply says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to, to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. And that last one carries significance for the mystery we're trying to solve of Christ's Jesus' identity. Um, it's the Mount of Olives. It's a place on this map right up at the top there. You can see the triangle. It's just outside the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the prophet Zechariah recorded that this same Mount of Olives would be the site where the Lord would bring great, the great and final judgment. In chapter 14, it says, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day in battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. As a result of that, rabbis taught that this mountain was associated with the coming of the Messiah. And so when our map indicates that Jesus comes into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, one writer says even Mark's geographical reference is saying, here he is, right? And there's another spot of interest on the map, and that's the city of Jerusalem itself on, on the left as you look at it there. Um, Jesus has been intent on arriving in Jerusalem. Luke puts it plainly when he says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And his unshakable determination is all the more remarkable when we grasp why Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem. 
It's not simply to celebrate the Passover, though he was arriving at Passover, um, like many throngs of other pilgrims. He was going to Jerusalem to be the Passover, to be that sacrifice, the lamb who would be slain. The Apostle Paul says it for us. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You know, some scholars connect the day of Christ's entry into Jerusalem that we're looking at with the day that the Passover lamb was actually selected for the temple sacrifice. Same day, indeed. So this map, it's our first clue, and it points us to who this Jesus is. He is coming to the great city to die as the ultimate Passover sacrifice from the Mount of Olives, the place associated with the revealing of the Messiah, God's long-awaited king. So here you can already see just from the map, the clues are beginning to line up already. Now the second clue is that colt um, that we talked about in the video and in the passage. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, Mark here simply tells us it's a colt. It's the young of some animal. Matthew tells us it's the colt of a donkey. And so, um, what's all the fuss about a donkey in this passage? Pretty much after Jesus, the donkey is the leading character in our, in our story. Um, but the donkey details here are another clue that points to Jesus as the Messiah. See, when Matthew writes about this donkey borrowing experience that's going on here, he quotes the Old Testament prophet, again, Zechariah. Matthew 21, it reads, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So when Jesus chooses the donkey as his ride, he's, he's acting out another clue to connect us to the ancient prophecies about the coming Messiah, the king of God's people. But it's a curious little detail then. It says that uh, he promises to return the donkey, right, when he's, when he's finished with it. This is a strangely humble king, one who returns donkeys that he, that he borrows. Um, Martin Luther pointed out the humility that the donkey brings to the picture when he wrote, look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby, he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them on himself. So, so clearly here, Jesus is intentionally fulfilling prophecies of the Messiah, but he has that kind of surprising, humble twist that goes with it. 
So this might better be called the humble entry instead of the triumphal entry. The, the triumph has to wait till the following Sunday. Now the third and fourth clues go together. They are the cloaks and the shouts. Look at verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the crowds hailed Jesus using these leafy branches. John tells us palm branches in his account. Those are a symbol of Jewish nationalism as they chafed under Roman rule. And the spreading of cloaks harkens back to the Old Testament where the people spread their cloaks before a king named Yehu. And so it's a tradition we would say fit for a king. And they shouted from the Psalms and they cried Hosanna. It's a common expression of praise but it has a history of being a cry of deliverance it's a greeting suitable for an incoming deliverer, a king. And so Jesus enters as a humble king on a foal of a donkey, one he'd even offer to return. What kind of king is this? It's not the kind that they were expecting, not what they thought the clues were pointing to. See, they were looking for something like Arnold on a Harley or Patton on a tank. Um, not meek Jesus on a donkey. See, they were right to hope in this man as their deliverer, just not in the way that they expected him to deliver them. So this morning, don't be like the crowds. Don't misread the clues. This is what the clues are designed to tell us. The donkey rider is the Messiah. They all, all the clues point to that. The map, the donkey, the cloaks, the branches, the shouts of Hosanna, all the clues point to this solution to our mystery. It was Jesus in Jerusalem as the humble king. And the murder weapon will be the cross as Jesus gives himself as our Passover lamb, the sacrifice to free us not from Roman oppression, but from our sins. So this morning it's critical before we, before we move past this, do you believe that? Do you believe that's where all the clues really point? That Jesus really is presenting himself as a Messiah sent by God to bear your sins on the cross and restore you to a right relationship with God. Will you this morning believe the clues and follow Jesus as your humble king? See, Jesus here is following God's plan, not the crowds. So that's why he's the humble king on a young donkey. And that's what makes what happens next a bit of a shocker. So at the close of that day of Palm Sunday, we read this in verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So in, in light of what follows on the next day, what we're about to see, you get a sense here that Jesus is casing the joint. Watch verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So these back-to-back assaults on the fig tree and the temple both take place on Monday of Jesus' final week. So on Sunday night, he scouts out the situation, and on Monday morning, he returns with a vengeance. And so the meat guy on the donkey goes ballistic on the temple and an innocent fig tree. Um, What's up with Jesus, right? Uh, Is he just having one of those horrible, terrible, no good, very bad days? Is Is this Monday morning Jesus? What, why? So I think what we... It's best to see Jesus here employing a teaching tactic that the Old Testament prophets would often use. Um, If you've ever read the the book of Isaiah, you know that about chapter 20, there's a really, really perplexing scene where God commands Isaiah to walk around naked. It's a symbol for what's going to happen to Egypt when they're taken slaves by Assyria. And so this shocking way of acting conveys God's message in a really provocative way. So both the cursing of the fig tree and the the devastation of the temple um, are those kind of enacted parables. Um, By both of these actions, Jesus is foretelling the coming of the judgment of God upon fruitless Israel and more specifically upon the temple itself. So think with me about that fig tree at first. In in the Old Testament, in places like Jeremiah chapter 8, a barren fig tree is a symbol of the unfruitfulness that brings God's judgment upon his people. Jesus cursing the fig tree then is not an environmental statement, okay? It's not an endorsement of Roundup or anything like that, right? Any more than Isaiah's walking around naked is an endorsement of nudist colonies. They have nothing to do with that. They are enacted symbols of the judgment of God upon his own people for their fruitfulness and unbelief in his son. And the cursing of the fig tree, as Mark tells it, sandwiches the temple incident. It's before and after, and it sheds light on it. So, immediately following the fig tree encounter, Jesus re-enters the city of Jerusalem, and once there, he enacts what the fig tree represented, and he turns that temple upside down, right? And to focus his anger on the temple itself, that was, that's a blow at the heart of the nation. Um, the temple, it's been described as the central institution of Israel's religious, political, and economic life. It served as a central bank, the Capitol building, and Wall Street. And Jesus trashing that temple would be like, imagine one of our political candidates going into the White House and throwing furniture around in the White House. It would have that kind of shock value. So Jesus is performing this second symbolic act 
aimed right at the heart of the people's religious, political, and economic life. And it's a ferocious assault. The language used for driving out the money changers, it's the same expression that was used of driving out demons. We say Jesus is a meek and humble servant king, which he surely is. Whatever we mean by that cannot mean that he tolerates sin, especially not in his father's house. So what particularly prompted Jesus to go off on the temple? Look at verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, so after the temple incident, he's teaching. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the people, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So what underlies Jesus' actions against the temple? Well, greed and corruption were likely part of it. Um, prayerless religion was definitely a part of it. It was to be a house of prayer. They'd turned it into a den of robbers. But there's another kind of a more clandestine matter that I think deeply troubles Jesus. I think it's important for us to focus on it this morning. Um, Jesus is deeply troubled, I think, by the temple's exclusivity. See, Jesus said the temple was intended to be a place where the nations, all the nations, all peoples could gather for prayer. But in reality, it had become anything but that. So there's the inner part of the temple, the sanctuary of the temple where Jewish worship happened. And then there was an outer court called the court of the Gentiles where non-Jews worshiped. And that's where all this commerce took place. So it's like trying to worship in a flea market, basically, is what's going on for any, any foreigners from another nation. And there was a sign that divided those two courts, so to speak. And it said, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So it hardly sounds like a house of prayer for all peoples, does it? You know, it's been said that Jesus did not clear the temple of foreigners, which is what they thought the Messiah would do, but rather he cleared the temple for them. So Jesus here is not merely cleansing the old temple, he's acting out its destruction would happen in 70 AD. This is another symbolic act anticipating that destruction and its replacement with a new temple, Christ himself. In the book of Revelation, we see it, this beautiful heavenly picture of the heavenly city. And there's no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So there's a new and better temple in our story and this temple is for every tribe and language and people and nation. This temple is Jesus. And as his body, there's a very real sense that the New Testament calls us the temple on, on this earth in this day. Paul puts it plainly. He says in 2 Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. We are the church. And as such... We must be a house of prayer for all 
peoples as well. He wants the new temple, which is now the church, his body on this earth, to be inclusive, not exclusive. And so this morning, we should stop and say, is there any exclusion that happens here? Are there people you hope won't come? Are there people, if they come, you wish they weren't here? Maybe because of their race. Are you an excluder, even a passive one, an avoider of certain folks? Are you an active welcomer of people who are different than the, than the most of us? You know, I ran across this really troubling study. This is one of their findings. It's recent. The relationship between holding racist views and white Christian identity is actually stronger amongst more frequent church attenders than among less frequent church attenders. So the more you attend church, the more you're inclined to hold racist beliefs. And we can quibble about definitions and who did the survey and all that kind of stuff, but should the results even be close? I mean, shouldn't the church, the temple of the living God, the very body of Christ on this earth, be the most inclusive, welcoming place on the planet? See, Jesus wants the new temple, which is us. His body on this earth to be inclusive, not exclusive. And that's why racism has no place in Christ's church. No place. Okay. That's why we can't embrace pragmatic solutions like segregation of churches. Y'all got your church over there. We got our church here. We can't do that because Jesus died to free the temple from that. Now, Dr. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern, put it this way. He said, this will mean a new global family made up of believers in Christ from every ethnic group on the planet. And it will mean that those who love that vision will work toward local manifestations of that ethnic diversity. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism globally and locally. Not color, but faith in Christ is the mark of the kingdom. Now, now, this stuff follows us like our shadow, right? We don't even know it's there. And so if you have questions or concerns about this, please sit down with one of our elders. We're all on a sorting journey about this stuff, trying to figure it out. Let's talk and pray together. Sit with us. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's find our way to be the people Jesus died to make us.
Well, in verse 20, they passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So now we're Tuesday morning of Jesus last week and Peter is awestruck. Uh, Jesus, check out the fig tree. Now, even though the primary purpose of the fig tree is to illumine the, the teaching of the temple assault and what it meant for the temple, Jesus, ever the great teacher, draws a second application from, from that and invites his disciples, you and me, into a life that pleases him, essentially saying this is what the new temple is going to be like. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. So Jesus is calling us to a life that's not marked by religious hypocrisy, but by two really genuine things. The first is faith, right? He says, have faith in God. He's talking about faith manifest in prayer. Jesus uses that fig tree to warn us towards a life of faith evidenced by prayer. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. If you didn't pray about it, you probably aren't exercising faith in it, right? They're just, they just go together. And we flirt with this indictment of prayerlessness all the time. So let me ask you this morning, if your prayer life, your personal prayer practices were the prayer practices of our church, what would our reputation be? Would our church be known as a house of prayer? See, Jesus is calling us to live a life free from the hypocrisy of prayerlessness and he's giving us huge promises to encourage us. Jesus wants us to pray. That's the first mark of the people, the new temple. Prayer. Believing prayer. And, and secondly, he wants us to forgive. Look at the closing verse of our passage. And he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So he singles out forgiving as central to life in his kingdom. This new temple is supposed to be marked by people who forgive. Um, if we're to live lives free of the, the burden that Jesus is condemning here, we must forgive if we have anything against anyone and this is where uh, there's another really hard teaching for, for us as a church family. We, at this point, we have to turn that racism thing around and look at it from the receiving end. What if you receive, what if you even received here some kind of racial remark or attitude or something that wounded you deeply? What should you do with that? And, and I, you know that our elders pray that we would be free of this, um, but it but it happens sometimes, and, and what do you do if it happens to you? Um, 
Well, your response is going to require extraordinary wisdom, but based on what Jesus says here, at its core, your response must must be forgiveness. Um, And I know this is a hard teaching, but it is the kindness of Jesus to free you from the alternative to forgiveness, which is you just carry this around with you and it eats you alive. Earlier this year, there's a brother, his name is Dalen McClee, and he modeled this response in a truly extraordinary way. Um, There was this serious car crash um, involving a police cruiser. You can see how serious it was. That's the police cruiser there, um, what's left of it. Uh, Happened right outside his apartment in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. He felt it. And McClee ran outside, pulled an officer from that mangled patrol car as flames began to spread into the interior of the car. This is what he said, I believe God took over then. Next thing I knew, I was ripping the door open, pulled him out and took him farther across the street. Police officials and others have credited McClee with saving this officer's life after the Sunday evening crash. And McClee said it wasn't a complicated decision to help. He says, I know this man is my brother through Christ and I couldn't leave him behind. But some of his friends wondered if he hesitated because of his previous interaction with local law enforcement officers. See, he had been wrongfully arrested and spent a year in jail related to a fight outside of a bar just in 2016. Um, He had rushed to the bar after his sister called saying she needed a ride home because a fight had broken out. And while there, at least one trooper fired shots at him. And while he was fleeing, he was arrested, and Dalen spent a year in jail before a jury acquitted him on the charges after reviewing surveillance video, security video. And that was a year away from his kids, and a year away from his mother, who was ill at the time, and she had since passed away. But McClee stressed forgiveness, saying he couldn't blame every police officer for bad interactions he had with any others. McClee is an African-American, as you saw, and the officer he rescued is a white officer. This is what he says. He says, we need to work on our humanity. That's the main problem of this world. We're stuck on how to get up or get even, and that is not how I was raised to be. I was always taught to forgive big. I don't want to be called a hero. He says, I just want to be known as an individual who's an upstanding man. And I hope that trooper sees this and knows he's forgiven. Forgive big. In the words of Devlin McClee. Forgive anything against anyone in the words of Jesus. In the words of the Apostle Paul, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. See, this is the new temple. This is the kingdom of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Humble, welcoming to all a house of prayer and forgiveness. May it be so here with each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Jesus, your, your actions, they surprise us. 
and your teachings, they push us. And my guess is this morning that you've pushed on most of us. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow you. Help us to be your people in a world that desperately needs you. And this we ask, Christ, in your great name and for your sake. Amen.